Stepping out is just a mass infiltration of Baylor students into the Waco community. It's a day to get outside of your comfort zone and serve others. It's hard, it's uncomfortable, and it's full of joy. But it's a tremendous opportunity for growth. To me, stepping out is the first step in serving this community. Stepping out is only the beginning. It's the introduction to the community. It's the introduction to community service. I'm not here just to be a Baylor student and to take classes, but I also want to be part of the community and make a difference while I'm here and not just take from the community. I want to give something back to it. The single greatest thing about stepping out from my viewpoint and I think from the people I talk to both both on both sides, from the, the participants from the homeless shelter and from the Baylor students, was the opportunity to work together as one body and get to know each other and to build the relationships and everybody is equal. We don't have a tremendous budget for maintenance, for landscaping, for renovation, for cleanup around the campus. Hard labor is a blessing. Uh, to us, and that's one of the huge reasons that we love the stepping out. Jesus said, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me, and so that's what I think about when I'm serving and when I'm doing that. It's not just another person that I gave money to or another person that I helped, but it truly is like the face of Jesus to me, and so that's like why it's really important. For the people that like don't want to go to stepping out, you suck. Oh, my word. They should at least try it once because you build so many relationships with the people that you're working for and the people that you're working with. Stepping out is more than just today. It's like an octopus that starts out in the middle with stepping out and then the, the tentacles go out. We have Baylor students that because they came to stepping out, they ended up being tutors uh, to our elementary school kids. They, came, they ended up being mentors to some of our middle school or high school kids. There's just something about Working with other people in uncomfortable situations like being sweaty and dirty that just like break down the barriers that are in between you and your relationship gets so much stronger, it's ridiculous. Another aspect of to me is just like as human nature is to want to be appreciated and to want to get something out of it, but sometimes when you serve you just gotta do it and you gotta remember that you're doing it for others and not for yourself. So I think it's it's pretty humbling too at the same time. Take the first step. Good morning and welcome to chapel this morning. Guess what? It's sweater weather. Yeah, yeah. So now I know if you're not from Texas, if you're somewhere north of Texas and you're thinking it's still 77 degrees outside or 80 degrees, well, we take what we can get and when it goes below 80, it's sweater weather. So we're excited about that. Glad for the cooler weather. I want to welcome you to chapel. My name is Becky Kennedy, and I'm associate chaplain and director for missions. And I want to tell you a little bit about what's going on this week. But first of all, I want to introduce you to Brandon. He's a student here at Baylor, and he's going to come talk to you about stepping out. Give it up for Brandon. Hey y'all, um, like she said, my name is Brandon Ratliff. I'm one of the members of the Stepping Out Steering Committee and we just really wanna encourage you to participate this year. Uh, as you're in the video, Stepping Out is our university-wide community day of service. Uh, this year it's happening October 30th, uh, which is a Saturday. However, registration is, um, the deadline is October 7th, so we can have enough job sites for everyone and we have 
a plethora of ways for you to sign up. Um, many student organizations are going to be involved, so if you're in part of a student organization, check with your leadership, see if they're doing it. Um, you can sign up through your residence halls, talk to your CLs or to your hall leadership teams, or we have a table in the sub that you can come by next week. Um, you can sign up as an individual or as with a group of friends. Uh, and we also have our website, which is baylor.edu backslash stepping out, no G. Um, and you can just sign up on there, get your information. It's really a great day uh, and a great way to build bridges with the Waco community. So just uh, participate and step out. Thanks. Thanks, Brandon. Uh, it's good that we're talking about community and working out in the community and, and being involved with our neighbors because this week we are celebrating and hosting our annual missions conference here at Baylor. Uh, we are hosting that out of the Office of Spiritual Life. Uh, you might have seen advertisement, chalking, flyers, things on the screen. It's called Be the Change. And, and this year our theme is on community and urban ministry. So what we do is every year at this time of year, we invite missionaries and mission practitioners from all over the globe to come to Baylor University. And we put on this conference so that you can interact with people who are out doing um, all kinds of work around the world in the name of Christ. And so this year, as I said, we're focusing on community and urban missions. So we'll have breakout sessions this afternoon in the sub and uh, tomorrow morning also in the sub. There'll be things on community development in Kenya, or there'll be how to empower women for economic development. So all types of uh, seminars that you don't want to miss, um, and there, again, our missionaries and mission practitioners will be doing those seminars. Tomorrow night in Barfield is our global village, and it's a street market, so come out and taste some food. On Wednesday, uh, if you are, if you're interested, have been interested in doing urban missions uh, in the Waco community and not sure how to do that, uh, on Wednesday afternoon at the Bobo, we'll meet at two o'clock, have a Dr. Pepper float, and then we'll go out and work with some of our community partners like Habitat for Humanity, the World Hunger Relief Farm, Waco Arts Initiative, and there's also going to be the Other Side of Waco tour with Mission Waco. So that will be at 2 o'clock on Wednesday. We'd love for you to come out, bring your friends, uh, and participate in that way. But again, there's all kinds of events going on this week and want you to take full advantage of meeting with our guests and learning about what God's doing around the world. You can find out more information at our table in the back, or you can visit our website at baylor.edu forward slash missions. As we begin our time of worship together, will you join me in prayer? Lord, believing that you are a God that is all present, that no matter where we go, that you are always there, my prayer for us this day is that we will be acutely aware of your presence in this place. And as we listen and hear from Bart this morning, may those words stir, stir within our hearts that we may be moved to act. In the name of Christ, amen. Our keynote speaker this week uh, is Bart Campolo. 
Bart spoke last night at Truett Seminary, and he's with us again this morning in chapel, and he will be speaking at some of our seminars this, uh, this afternoon and tomorrow, so you'll have a t- many opportunities to hear him speak. Bart lives with his wife and children in Cincinnati, Ohio, and has been doing urban ministry for many, many years. Well, he's fairly young, but he's been doing this for many, many years, and you're going to be very entertained And you're going to be impacted by the words that he says this morning. So would you please give a warm Baylor welcome to Mr. Bart Campolo. What a warm welcome. Hey, good morning. I'm really glad to be here. I I know you're supposed to say that when you're the speaker. You're supposed to say you're glad to be here. But I am pretty glad to be here. Although it is weird to be the inner city ministry guy at a missions conference at Baylor University. Because, like, there's this huge temptation I'm feeling right now is to, like, start off by trying to dazzle you with, like, ghetto miracle stories. You know how missionaries do that? Sometimes they show up and they tell you these amazing stories of these incredible things they've done. Like, you know, I just want to start by, you know, like, two weeks ago, I walked up to the corner right near my house, and the drug guys were out there doing their thing and everything, and I just walked right into the midst of them. And I put up my hands and I said... Put away your guns, boys. It's repentant time. And they fell on their knees around me, and I led them all to Jesus. And ladies and gentlemen, I'm here to tell you that five weeks later, all of those drug dealers are now at the Harvard Medical School learning to prescribe legal pharmaceuticals in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Right? I mean, you know, I mean, you, you, you get people that do that. They show up and they tell you these dazzling things like, you should support my ministry, you should come join us because all this amazing stuff happens. And I, I'm here to tell you, I'm not going to do that this morning, but I could. Because back in the day, I used to run this missionary organization called Mission Year. Some of you may have seen, they're, they're here today, the table is in the back. It's a fabulous program that recruits people like you to set aside a year of your life to live and work among the poor. And man, when I was running Mission Year, I used to tell those stories all the time. I mean, because my job was to recruit. So I would go to college campuses and I would try to recruit young people to come and do the program. But then I would have to go to churches to raise the money to pay for the program. And so, you know, I was always out there raising money and recruiting people. And I got really good at telling those stories. As a matter of fact, a few years ago, it dawned on me that I was so good at talking about loving poor people and so good at recruiting people to love poor people, and so good at raising money to love poor people, that I didn't actually know any poor people anymore. That's really weird. All of a sudden, it dawned on me, like, I I had gone from being a street-level, inner-city ghetto minister to being a nonprofit executive with an office, flying around on airplanes, giving lectures. I gotta tell you something. That was, that was a really weird moment when I realized. It. You know, I realized like that somehow I, that change happened. I hadn't noticed it because you know I was still telling fifteen-year-old war stories. You know, I started to feel like such a phony, and I ended up getting really depressed by the whole thing. I, I, and most, you, you're too young to know. You, you're too young to be having midlife crises, right? Like you, you're still getting on with your like early life crises, but like. You, but you got parents. So you know what I'm talking about when I say midlife crisis, right? You know, like, a guy like me wakes up in his 40s, like, and all of a sudden goes, like, how did I get here? This isn't who I was going to be. This isn't what I was going to do with my life. I was going to be this cool lover of poor people, and I ended up, how did this happen to me? I got 
just so depressed in that moment. And like for about a year and a half, I was kind of clinically depressed, basically. My family didn't know what to do. Finally, my, my wife and my kids came to me one day. They sat me down and said, look, if you're so miserable doing what you're doing, quit. They were like, look, you want to go back and be close to poor people? We'll go with you. We'll do, it. Like, we'll do anything. We'll do anything you want. Just stop being so sad all the time. So about five years ago, um, you know, my family, me, we all just threw our stuff in the van. And we all, I quit my job, and we all moved out to Cincinnati, Ohio. And you might say, well, why is Cincinnati of all places? Why did you go there? Well, I'll tell you why. Because my wife and I had some old friends in Cincinnati who were living in this really rough neighborhood there called Walnut Hills. And they had been trying to make this neighborhood a better place for like 10 years, and they were just about ready to quit. They said, man, it just hasn't come together and quit. But they said, look, if you come and you want to do this, you want to come live with us, we'll stay. We'll try, and we can try again together. So, so we moved to Cincinnati about five years ago. And I got to be honest with you, five years later, we haven't changed that much. Like, the neighborhood's still a mess. It, you know, and, and the closest thing we got to a program, and we don't have any big fancy programs, the closest thing we got to a program is every Monday night, my, my neighbors and I, we put on a dinner party for vulnerable folks in our neighborhood. We got about 50 people to come eat dinner with us every Monday night. That's it. Now, I know that doesn't sound very impressive. I mean, it's not very impressive to me, but I got to tell you something, man. You tell it to church people, they go crazy. You tell them, that, they go, praise the Lord, brother. You have planted an inner city church. You have planted a new congregation. Hallelujah. Oh, it makes me laugh. It may, no, it makes me laugh when they call our dinner party a church. Because I got to tell you something. If you came to dinner with me and my friends, you would know it was no church. And I mean, I'm not just talking about like because we don't sing hymns or, or read scripture and I don't preach sermons at it. I mean, I'm talking about like if you saw who was there. You would know it was no church because we're not one of those ministries. Got like former drug dealers and former prostitutes and former junkies. All our people are still working. You know, like, I mean, it's a tough crowd. I mean, it really is. I mean, we live in a pretty hardcore place. And 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 we don't do any churchy stuff. We don't sing any stuff. I mean, we eat dinner. We eat dinner together. Every week we eat dinner together. Same people. And after dinner, we play some goofy game, you know, because we got kids and old ladies and stuff. And we try to create some game, like a family-style game that will make everybody feel, like, a little bit more connected. And then, uh, and then, like, the closest I come to a sermon is before everybody leaves, I'll stand up and say, like, you know, have a great week. You know, like, don't kill anybody. And everyone's like, hey, man. And that's our, that's our sermon. And, but, you know, it's funny. You get to the, you get with, again, the church people, the evangelical types, these evangelical Christians, they're still enthusiastic. They go, oh, so it's not a church, it's an outreach. You are, you are running an outreach program to the poor and the needy. And then they always ask the question that evangelical Christians always ask people like me. They always say, so brother, are you having an impact? Are you changing your world? Are, are you seeing lives change? That's what they, are you seeing lives change? Well, listen, look, if I was still raising money, I would tell you one thing, right? If I was still trying to recruit you and get you to sign up to come and live with me, I might tell you something, but the truth of the matter is I got enough friends. I don't need anybody. You know, we got plenty of people, and we, got, and we all have real jobs. Like, we don't do this professionally. We all have real jobs, so we don't need to raise any money. So I don't need your money. So I'll tell you the truth. The truth of the matter is no. No. <laughs> no, we're not changing lives. No, we're not turning around our neighborhood. Are you? No. No. See, what are you talking about? 
listen, if you knew the people, if, if you knew the people I hung out with, you would understand. The people I hang out with are not going to change. So what you talking about? Well, this is a guy in my neighborhood, a guy who eats dinner with us. His name is Richard, okay? Now, I've been knowing Richard for, for a number of years, almost since I first moved. I got to know him. When I first lived there, I used to walk around the neighborhood, and, and, and there's all these old guys that hang out up by the convenience store on the corner. They sit on milk crates, and they drink beer out of, out of paper bags, malt liquor. And Richard's one of these guys. And I, I would walk, I'd go to that convenience store all the time, so I'd walk by, and I'd say, hey, yo, what's happening? Trying to make, connect with these guys, and they would never talk to me. They wouldn't give me the time of day. For all that time. Finally, one day, I walked into the convenience store, and I ordered a Dr. Pepper, but I told the guy, leave it in the bag. So I come out with my bottle in a bag, and I walk over to the guy and say, hey, man, can I drink with you guys? And they're like, oh, sure, sit down. You know, and, like, then we were cool. And, uh, and I started hanging out. And it was funny, because I got to know them, and, and they told me why they wouldn't talk to me before. They said, well, we always figured you were an undercover cop. Which made me laugh, because, like, I'm the only white man in eight blocks, right? Undercover. They'll never notice. <laughs> Whatever. So everybody laughs about that now. Oh, remember when we thought Bo was a cop? Yeah, you know, so. So I started, and they were all, not, like, I mean, these are hard guys, man. But, 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 they, but they kind of, they're good to me. They're good, they're good to my friends now. And Richard especially kind of took me under his wing. He's introduced me around to a lot of people. He's talked, he's told me, given me a lot of wisdom. But you see, the thing you got to understand about wisdom, Richard is, he's 50 years old, but he looks like he's 75. I mean, he's, he, I mean, because he's just been out there. He's been on the streets since he was 15 years old. His mother was a prostitute, and his father was a John, who he didn't even know. And when he was, when he was a teenager, when he was a young kid, his mother went off to buy drugs. She was a crackhead, and she went off to buy, and she never came back. So she left him with some aunts and stuff, and he was a real wild kid. Dropped out, of co- got, got, dropped out of high school, and, and, and eventually he just ended up on the streets about 15 years, 15 years old. So he'd been out there for 35 years. It's a hard street, man. I mean, Richard's been shot three times. He's been stabbed three times. He's been in and out of jail. He's been in and out of homeless shelters. I mean, he's, not, he, he, he's got no teeth. He can't read. He's illiterate. He's addicted to cocaine. He's addicted to alcohol. He's never had a job that paid a real paycheck. He's never had a real job in his whole life. Scrambling here and there. He's never had a relationship with a woman that didn't end in physical violence. So you see, what I'm here to tell you, like, I'm not going to be back here next year in chapel telling you, like, praise God, God's done a miracle in Richard's life, and now he's a deacon at the church, and he's got his house back, and his family is pulled back together, and he's working hard, and he's tithing, and praise God, he's a chain. No, that's not going to happen, okay? Richard is done. He is cooked. It is over for him. There's not going to be some miracle. I'm not going to come back here telling you about his transformation. His ticket has been punched. I mean, and, and, I mean, I hate to break it to you. You want to know the big difference I've made in Richard's life? Here's, here's the big transformative difference we made in Richard's life after five years. And now when he sees me walking up the street, he stands up. That's it. He stands up and he puts his arms out because he knows I'll hug him. Because I don't know what to do in my neighborhood, but I, I, so I hug everybody. That's all I know what to do. So Richard knows I hug him. And on the days I hug Richard, it's filthy, junky, throws his arms around me. I know I'm the only person that touches that man. I'm the only person that touches him with any tenderness. That's it. 
Now, I, I mean, honestly, it doesn't always take 50 years in my neighborhood for somebody's ticket to get punched. I, I got another family that we eat dinner with, Sarita. Sarita's the mom, and she got four kids. And, like, they are, like, she, she, she's his mom, four kids, 10, 7, 4, and 2. Okay, all by different guys. Like, she, and she's, you know, she's just your all kind of nightmare woman living up there in this apartment building. And, and, I, and they eat dinner with us sometimes. And I got to know Sarita because she lives next door to a friend of mine. And we, when I would go visit my friend, we would always try to chat her up and try to get her and the kids to come to dinner. They're not interested in me at all. Until one day, Sarita got evicted from her apartment. You know, she didn't pay rent. And she was off her medications that week. You know, she's on all this kind of psycho medication. And she was off her meds. And so when, they got, when, when she found out they were evicted, she went crazy. And she just started smashing windows in all, in all the windows in the apartment. She started smashing. All the kids are there, and they're screaming, and she's just tearing the place up. And then she picked up a piece of glass, and she started cutting her arms, cutting her arms, and she could kill herself right in front of the kids. And they're all just standing there screaming as their mom's bleeding all over the place in front of her. And then the cops, her, her boyfriend shows up. And he walks in on all this craziness, and he calls the cops. And the cops show up, and he carted her away. And you want, you, you want to talk about health care in our country, like the great health care system that we don't want to mess with? And they brought her back the next day. They wrapped up her arms, and they brought her back the next day and dropped her off with some meds, and they said, you know, hope it works out for you. But she was still evicted. And that was when my neighbor called me and said, man, you better get up here, or there's going to be trouble. So I went up there, and my neighbor and I, my, my friend and I, we went and knocked on her door. She opened up and said, look, you don't know me, you don't know my people, but but you know who we are. You know what we're about. I said, listen, I don't know you, but it seems like you could use some help. So you want me to help you? So for the next two weeks, we're hustling all over town, looking for apartments, filling out applications, trying to make phone calls. And finally, I found her some $25 a month HUD pay-per-income apartment. Like, it's just a rat hole place, but at least it was a place to get them off the street. But we couldn't move any of the furniture there because they're, they're so infested with bed bugs and everything that we couldn't take anything along. So I scrambled up with some friends and I, and we got some old used furniture, and we set it all up. Set them up real good. I was back in that apartment a few months later. I went to visit just to check in. I mean, I saw them around the neighborhood a lot, but I went to see the apartment again. I walk in there, and Sarita's sitting at the table smoking a blunt, blowing smoke in the face of the two-year-old. The four-year-old's running around without any clothes on. The boyfriend's sitting on the couch watching hardcore pornography at 10 o'clock in the morning in front of the kids. So I'm looking at this little four-year-old. His name's Little Twan. And here's the thing I'm going to tell you about Little Twan is. He's not going to go to college. He's not going to come to Baylor, okay? He's not going to graduate high school. He's not going to learn how to read, I promise you. You're not going to be the president of the United States. Like, he, he's, he's not going anywhere. He, he's, you say, well, how can you say that? What, what are you saying? Why, why? It's not just because he comes from an abusive, neglectful home. It's not just because he's got... It's because she was using when she was carrying him, man. He was born with fetal alcohol syndrome. Like, he, his ticket was punched before he ever got born. So, you want to know the impact I got on his life? So, so they come to dinner sometimes. And about a year ago, they're at dinner, and we had lasagna. My wife made lasagna, and, and, and we're all sitting around eating this lasagna, just sitting, talking, and everything. And little Twan loves lasagna. It's his favorite thing in the world. And he's sitting there eating the lasagna. My next-door neighbor, Karen's sitting across the table from him, and he looks up at her, and he says, Karen, this lasagna is terrific. I love it. 
He said, I want all the lasagna. I want to eat all the lasagna in the whole world. He was totally into it. And then after dinner that night, what we did was we played this game of glorified game of musical chairs. But what we did was we rigged it. All the adults, we all wink, wink to each other and everything. And we rigged it so little Twan would win. And when he won, man, it was like he had won an Olympic gold medal. He just was strutting around the room with his arms in the air going, I'm the champ, I'm the champ, I'm the champ. I mean, he was in heaven. I mean, that's the thing. I can't do anything about this kid's future. But he had a good night. That's about what we could do. We could give him a good night. And he said, well, I mean, this is really depressing, man. Like, I, I, I don't understand. Like, don't you believe in God? Don't you believe, in, don't you believe God can do anything? Don't you believe in miracles? Oh, yeah, don't get me wrong. I believe in miracles. I've seen miracles happen. I've seen kids who came from worse situations than little Twan make it and have really wonderful and productive lives. I've seen that stuff go on. I, I'm not saying miracles don't happen. I'm just saying they don't happen very often. Where I come from, they happen hardly at all. I mean, I mean, I believe in miracles, but they call them miracles for a reason, right? I mean, and don't get me wrong. I, 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 don't, it's not, I don't think God's holding out. Like, I'm not mad at God. I don't think God's holding out. I don't think God could save little Twan and Richard and everybody else, and he just holds back because he doesn't want to. I, I don't think, I don't, my, the God I believe in doesn't hold out. I don't think God's, God's looking at, he said, four people get cancer, and God goes like, oh, okay, you die, you die, you, I'll do a miracle for you, you get to live, you die, you, no, come on. Do you really think God works that way? The God I believe in is always doing his best. He's always seeking to love and always seeking to save and always seeking to redeem and always seeking to heal. Now, the problem isn't that God doesn't care. The problem isn't that God isn't on the case. The problem is God doesn't always get what he wants. Now, I know you're not supposed to say that at a Baptist. You know, all the Calvinists are going to go like, well, what are you talking about God doesn't? Come on. People say, how can you say it? What about the sovereignty of God? Sovereignty of God? Come on, man. God isn't even sovereign in my life, and I want him to be. I've surrendered my will. I say, God, take me and do your will in my life. And, and it doesn't happen. Every day, I, Bart Campolo, I can, every day I flout the will of God. I personally circumvent the will of the Almighty. Every day there are things that God wants me to do, and I don't do them. And there are things that it is God's will that I should not do, and I do them. I violate God's will. And so do you. So do you. So do you. I'm looking at you. I know. You... You are a, you violate the will of God. Isn't that true? Yes. Yes, it is. I, I can see it in your eyes. See, see, this thing. You don't do the will of God, and I don't do the will of God, and she doesn't do the will of God, and he doesn't do the will of God. So if none of us individually are doing the will of God, how is it that we have the presumption to act as though God's will is done in the wide world? Come on. It's absurd. I mean, see, what are you talking about? Here, look, look. When I was a kid, I played high school basketball, okay? I, they, they play basketball here, right? Not, it's not, I mean, I know it's Texas, but, like, they don't just play football, right? You have other sports, right? Baylor, basketball team? I, I know, like, sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. But, like, right now you have a basketball team? Okay. I played high school basketball. Now, here's the thing. If any of you are familiar with the sport, what, what, you, what they teach you in basketball is this. Is that at the end of the quarter, at the end of the half, at the end of the game, when there's two seconds to go... No matter where you are on the court, no matter where you are, if you have the ball, what do you do? 
You shoot, you throw it. You could be 90 feet away from the basket, like with your back turned. You throw it, oh, throw it over your head, like try. That's what they tell you. And you say, well, you say, well when you throw it from 90 feet away over your head, do you really think it's going to go in? And the answer is no, you don't think it's going to go in. So if you don't think it's going to win, then why would you shoot it? Well, you shoot it because what? Every now and then, it goes in. And when it goes in, when it goes in, the crowd goes wild and everybody's cheering. And they show it. They take the videotape and they show it on ESPN highlights. And they say, it was a miracle shot in Waco. See, what are you trying to say? What I'm trying to say is, I think God is always seeking to save and always seeking to heal, and always seeking to redeem. The problem is, God doesn't always get what he wants, but once in a while, you do what he wants you to do. And you do what he wants you to do. And you go where you're supposed to go, and you say what you're supposed to say. Once in a while, it all comes together. Everybody runs the play, and God gets what he wants. And when God gets what he wants, oh man, it's a miracle. See, I'm not saying I don't believe in miracles. I'm just saying I think miracles are miracles even for God. I think even God gets gets excited. But where I come from, it just don't happen very much. You say, well, well man, if it's so bleak where you come from, man, then, then, then what, what are you doing there? You, you know whose ministry I relate to the most right now? Ever since I've been in Wanna Hills, the person I think about the most is Mother Teresa. Now, I, I know you're young, but are you familiar with Mother Teresa? You know who I'm talking about? Like, for those of you that don't, cat, little Catholic nun in Calcutta, India. And Mother Teresa's whole ministry was this. She would go around the streets of this burned out poor city and she would scoop people up out of the gutter there were people laying in the street dying AIDS, dying of starvation dying of tuberculosis and she would go scoop these people up laying in the gutter dying with nobody to care for them, flies all over them and everything. she'd scoop them up and she'd bring them back to her convent and she and her, she and her, 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 her fellow, her nuns they would, they would gently cut the filthy rags off of them and they would bathe their wounds bathe their bodies and then dress their wounds put them in clean pajamas put them in a bed with clean sheets in a quiet room and then she would park one of the nuns next to the bed to hold their hands and stroke their hair and whisper in their ear that they were precious to God and that God loved them until they died and they said to Mother Teresa Dan Rather asked her he said do you really think that you can save all these poor people in Calcutta and she smiled and she said no all the, people I, all the people we go after, they're all terminally ill. They're all going to die. I can't stop them from dying. But she said, nobody should die that way. Alone. Unloved. She said this thing I've always remembered. She said, sometimes, sometimes following Jesus means accompanying the poor on the last stage of a very difficult and painful journey. And I get that. I get that. Because in my neighborhood, most of the people I work with are, I guess, what you call terminally broken. They ain't going to get fixed. See, what are you trying to say? Well, listen, if you get nothing else out of hearing me this morning, get this. This is what I'm trying to say. Is that no matter how, you're going you're to be seeing missionaries all week, and they're going to be telling you amazing things and stuff like that. But, like, what I'm telling you is, no matter how many evangelical types try to fool you, here's the, I'm going to tell you the truth. There are some people out there that you can't save. And there are some people that you can't fix. And there's some people that you can't heal. But there is nobody. There's nobody you can't love. There's nobody you can't love. I mean, that's, that's what our home ministry is about. It's about loving people no matter what. You say, well, what's your program? We don't have a program. I told you that. We, you know, we don't have any programs. 
We, we don't do all that stuff. We just hang out with people. We're just with them. We're just close. He said, well, do you at least evangelize them? I mean, yeah. I mean, if you can't save their bodies, at least save their souls. I don't even bother to evangelize people most of the time. I don't need to in my neighborhood because the college students on their missions trips do that. These little short-term missions trips, they show up in a van with matching T-shirts, and they jump out of the van, and they lead everybody to Jesus, and then they jump in the van, and they drive back to their school. And, 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 and you say, well, shouldn't they stay? Don't worry. The next week, there'll be another crew from another college. I mean, everybody in my neighborhood has become a Christian 17 or 18 times, at least. You say, you, you mock, but, you know, you've got to save people. So, listen, man, the God I believe in loves all of my neighbors infinitely more than I ever could. So I'm not really worried about trying to, like, get, like, get them to say some magic words so that he won't kill them forever. I, don't, I figure God loves them so much, if there's any way he can be with them, he's got them covered. I mean, I talk about, I talk about my faith all the time with people because they always want to ask. That's what everybody wants to talk about. But I'm not, I'm not on that tip. You say, well, then what are you doing there? You know what I'm doing there? Martin Buber. Martin Buber was a sociologist. I'm, I'm going to try to explain this real simple. Um, some of you are studying sociology. Martin Buber is a great sociologist. He wrote a very famous book called I and Thou. And in this book, what Martin Buber contended was is that most of our human relationships aren't human relationships at all. Most of the time, we don't relate to people as people. We relate to them as functions or as objects. So that, like, the person at the bank isn't really a human being that you're interacting with. It's a, she's, a, like, a human ATM unit. The guy who's fixing your car is a car-fixing function. The, the, you know, a lot of times, even people, like, even women aren't really women. They're just things to look at or things to use. He said, most of our relationships, we treat people as objects. But Buber said, once in a while, two people connect. Once in a while, their eyes meet. And, 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 and I connect with this person from the depth of my being to the depth of their being. And once in a while, like we have, it, it's not an I-it relationship. It's an I-thou relationship. And they know that we're really together. And they're really felt and understood in this deeper way. It's hard to describe something. Like, what are you talking about? I guess what I'm talking about is like, do you ever watch that? You're, you're too young. You wouldn't. Like, there was this show on TV when I was a kid called Cheers. Yeah. Oh, you do know Cheers? Okay, sorry. Remember the bar and everybody's hanging out in the bar? Norm! And all that stuff, right? Do you remember the song? The song, the song said, Sometimes you want to go what? Where everybody knows your name. And they're always glad you came. You want to be where you can see our troubles are all the same. You want to be where everybody knows your name. You know what I'm doing in my neighborhood, my friends and I are doing? We're trying to create a little space where people who get treated like worthless objects, like trash all day long, walk in and are cherished as vows. And everybody knows their name. And they know that they belong and they're loved and connected. That's the best I can do. He said, I, 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 I sometimes wish we ran programs because programs are nice and clean. I'll tutor you, you get tutored, two hours, you go home. But he's like, I, you know, I'll feed you, you get fed. There's a, there's a platform between us, you go home. But man, we just live there. This, it, we just, like, we got all these relationships. And I got to tell you something, those relationships that we got are messy. I mean, I'm trying to call you into loving the broken and the needy and the poor, but i got to tell you something, man, it's messy. Because those people, man, they don't have any boundaries. They show up, they call, and like, it's crazy. Stuff goes on, there's drama, ghetto drama all the time in my neighborhood. Listen, I'll tell you something. I, 
I'm going to give you a piece of advice, right? I want you to love the poor. I want you to love the broken. I want you to fight for justice and all that stuff. But listen, if you're going to do it, take this advice. Loving broken people is a team sport. You do not want to do it. I'm not, I'm not saying you should do it or you should do it. No, no, no. Like, I live with my friends. We love all the same people together. And that's important because some days I can't go out there. Some days I'm too beat up to do it. And my next door neighbor or the lady around the block who's part of our gang, she says, look, I'll go take her to school. You don't have to. Or I'll go talk to that guy. You don't have to. And, 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 and sometimes I get so busted up with the pain of what's going on in the neighborhood. And I come home and I'm sitting in the backyard crying. And somebody comes out and I say, listen, Dre messed up on this thing again. And they know Dre. And they know me. And we bear each other's burdens. So, so, so I'm telling you, it's a team sport. But even if you do it with a group, it still gets messy. Okay, I said, one story. So two years ago, I'm at my kitchen table with my kids. I'm, I'm trying to tell you what I'm talking about. And two years ago, I'm at the kitchen table with my kids. They're getting ready for school. My daughter's a high school senior at the time. My son's a a freshman, and they're getting ready to go off to school, and a knock comes at the door, 7 o'clock in the morning. Bam, bam, bam. And that, that is kind of cool, because it happens every morning. Because there's this little neighbor girl named Tanya, and she's 12 years old, and she goes to the same school that my kids go to. It's a junior high, senior high thing. And, and so she goes there with them, and so she rides to school with them. And she's in our fellowship. And I get to, her, her, her and her mother. And I got to tell you, we're talking about the most messed up ghetto family you've ever seen. Like, the mom is this little, skinny, mentally handicapped, violent, foul-mouthed, hardcore, hardcore woman. She's just scrappy. And the daughter, she got her own set of issues. She's, all, she's been on disability since she was born. I mean, she's just a mess. And they got three older brothers, but they're all in prison. They're all older, and they're gone. So it's just the two of them. And, I mean, they just, I mean, it's just hateful. I mean, I've gone up there and had to referee between them when the mother was screaming at her. I should have aborted you when I had a chance, you little nothing. You're, you're worthless. You're going to end up nothing. And the girl's yelling back, I hate you, and screaming. And they get violent sometimes. It's, it's, it's a mess, but, like, they're messed up, but they're our friends. And we eat dinner together every Monday night. So Tanya goes to school with my kids. So, so, I, so I go to the door, and I think it's going to be Tanya. I open the door, and Tanya's there, but then Terry's there too, the mom. And this is surprising because, man, she, she's never up before noon. She drinks, and she's never up before noon. So I said, what's up? Terry looks at me, and she says, Tanya got raped in the building last night. I just thought you ought to know. And as soon as she said that, man, my heart just sank. Because, see, I knew the building they lived in. It was just up the street from my house, and it's this little, it's, it's this building, it's, 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 it's a crap hole. I mean, there's eight apartments, but only two of them are occupied. The rest are abandoned. There's no heat in there. She has to heat the place by opening up the oven and just running the jets all the time. I mean, it was dangerous, scary. It's cockroaches, rats. I mean, it, junkies in the, shooting up in the hallway. I mean, it's, it is your every kind of nightmare place. I mean, it was so bad that my friends and I had gotten together, and we had figured out we bought another little house with two apartments in it. We were going to move them out of that apartment into this other place at the end of the summer. We were fixing this place up for them. But as soon as she told me Tanya got raped in the building, I knew that we were too late. And I thought, what a jerk I am. That jerk. I mean, I wouldn't have left my daughter in that building for five minutes, but I was willing to leave Tanya up there, a little 12-year-old up there for three months while I got, until I got around to fixing up the place. And now she's raped. She's on her way home from the library, 6 o'clock at night. Some old guy grabs her, pulls her into a back room apartment, works her over, 
So there's my Monday. You know, we go off to the hospital, and the nurses come, and they do the rape kit thing and all that stuff, and then the police come, and they interview her, and they do the sketch thing, and then the counselors come, and it's just person after person. We're just sitting there all day long. But at the end of the day, man, I was just completely, we were just, it was overwhelming. And then I got to figure out where, where, where they're going to go because, like, I can't take them back to the building, right? I'm not going to put her back in this building where she just got traumatized. So I'm calling around trying to figure out someplace. Finally, my son calls me up, and he says, look, man, they can stay in my room. Like, I got a double bed in there. They can stay in there. I don't care. Just, just bring them home. So I said, look, we're going to stay at my house. And Tanya says, fine, but Terry won't go. The mom won't go. I said, what do you mean you won't go? She said, man, I got to go back to the apartment. I'm staying there. She said, if I don't stay in the apartment, they'll come in and rob my house. They'll take my TV set. I got to protect the TV set. Your daughter just got raped, but you're going to protect the TV set. I mean, that's where she's at. And I mean, at this point, I'm just going like, wow, you are the worst. But whatever. So she's staying in the apartment. Tanya's staying in my place. And all week long, we're going to rape crisis centers, and we're going to counselors, and we're, you know, trying to do something to try to, like, make this thing better. And on the Thursday of the week, we had to go back to the hospital for the interview. Because what they do is when, when, a, when a minor gets raped in our town, they have a nurse and psychologist who interview the child on videotape so that if it comes to court, they can play the videotape for testimony and the kid doesn't have to face her attacker in open court. It's a good thing. So on that Thursday morning, I'm saying to Tanya, look, we got to go, we got to go, we got to go. And she's upstairs messing with her hair and stuff like that. I'm like, come on, come on, we got to go. And so she finally comes down. We're about 20 minutes late. So we jump in the car, we race up the street to the apartment. Terry's waiting on the street, and she is pissed. She is so angry. She says, you're late. You're late. You're always late. I'm sick of you being late. And I said, look, look, we're fine. I said, I left enough time. We still make it to the hospital in plenty of time. Don't worry. She said, no, I have to be back here by noon because the Section 8 guy's coming at noon, and I, I got, I, I need, they're, they're making me move out of this building. They condemn the buildings. Now I got to move, and I got to get my voucher, and if I don't get my voucher, I, I won't have any place to live, so I got to be back here at noon. And I said, Terry, we ain't going to be back by, by, by noon. It's going to take all day. I said, Terry, give me the phone number. I'll call the Section 8 guy. I'll fix it. Because it's amazing how in my city, like, a white voice on the other end of the phone gets a whole lot of different attitude. It's really strange. It's almost as if discrimination hasn't ended. So I call the guy, sure enough, he's like, fine, we'll move to the next day, so we're cool. I hang up the phone. I say to her, look, I, I fixed it. We're done. But she won't stop yelling. She goes, I'm sick of you. I'm sick of all this. I'm sick of you. I'm sick of all this stuff. And, I, and finally I said, Terry, shut up. I said, why are you mad at me? I didn't do anything wrong. And she said, Bart, I'm not mad at you. I'm mad at that little bitch in the back seat. She said, if she hadn't had to go get herself raped, I wouldn't have to be moving in the first place. That little tramp, she, she probably wanted it. This freaks me out. Like, at that point, that was, that was too much for me. I just pulled the car over to the side of the road, turned it off. I, I turned the car off, I turned it off, I said, shut up, woman. You shut up, you stupid woman. You are, don't you ever let that stupidity come out of your mouth again. I said, she's a little girl. She's allowed to come and go in her own building without, she should be allowed to come and go without having to get raped. I said, there's only one man to be mad at in the whole wide world right now, and he's not in this car. I looked at the little girl, I said, your mother's an idiot. Let me tell you something, you didn't do anything wrong. Now, I know it's not good ministry practice to curse people out. <laughs> but I just felt like somebody needed to, 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 to defend the, the girl. Somebody need to tell her that, like, it's never her fault. It's never your fault when a man does that stuff. When I got done screaming, I said, that's it. Turn on the car, and we drove to the hospital. 
and they took Tanya in for the interview, and then Terry and I were sitting out in the waiting room. We wait, waited out there together for two hours. Now, that was uncomfortable. Like, no, because she's, she's angry at me. I'm angry at her. We're just like, you know. I sat there just fuming for two hours before it hit me, before I figured it out, before the dime dropped, you know what I mean? Before the Holy Spirit spoke in my ear, whatever. All of a sudden, I'm sitting there going, oh. And I looked up at her. I said, Terry, this happened to you, didn't it? She looked up at me and she said, yeah, three times. First time I was seven. Second time I was nine. Third time I was 17, and there was three of them. And they put me in the hospital with a broken jaw for three months. All of a sudden it dawns on me, right? Like, why she's not being a more sensitive mother to her daughter. I mean, this thing is dredging up all sorts of bad stuff. I said to her, I said, Terry, when, when this happened to you, I said, who helped you? Who did you talk to? Who did you tell? She looked at me as cold as I've ever been looked at. And she said, I'm telling you. Because there was nobody there for her. So she's watching all this fuss get made over Tanya. And she's thinking, man, where, where was that for me? She's got all sorts of stuff. What do, you, what do you say then? What, what, what am I supposed to do at that point? What, what, I'm trying to think. What am I supposed to say that's going to erase 40 years of that kind of pain and abuse and neglect? I mean, nobody wake. I mean, I know she's a monster, but nobody wakes up one day and says, I want to be a monster. Somebody got to her over and over again. I didn't know what to do. The only thing I, the only thing I did that was smart was I, when, when Tanya came out, we got in the car and we drove home. I dropped Tanya off at my house first. I said, you go home, Marty's there, you go, go in there. And I parked the car and I walked Terry back to the apartment. I walked her home. I walked her up the stairs to the apartment door. We didn't say anything. When we got to the door, I finally just said, look, I'm sorry I yelled at you, okay? I'm sorry I screamed at you. I said, look, this is just a bad week. This is a bad day. Like, I'm sorry I screamed at you, but I said, maybe tomorrow will be a little bit better. I don't know, but I, I got to go. I turned and I started walking out. As I'm walking out, I get about halfway down the stairs. She yells, but! I turn around. That's, she, she just talks. She, she yells whenever she talks. But! I said, what? She said, what about my hug? And I told you, we hug everybody. We're all hugging community and stuff like that. But like, I, I got to tell you, I didn't feel like hugging her. Like, I just wanted to get out of there. I just, I, I just felt, so I, whatever, fine. So I go back, give her the little hug. Bye. Got to go. I, I start down the stairs again. She goes, Bart. I go, What? She says, I love you, Bart. And that freaked me out. <laughs> no, no, it, it freaked me out because, you see, I've known that woman for years, and I've never once heard her say those words to anybody. She's never said them to me. She's never said them to anybody in the fellowship. I know for a fact she's never told her daughter that she loves her because I begged her to say it, and her daughter's come to me crying night after night and saying, my mother hates me. She never wanted me. She, she doesn't love me. And... and I, I, she's never said it in all over in all the time I've known her. She's never said I love you, and all of a sudden she's like, "I love you." I wish I could say I was warmed, and I went back, and we, man, I was just like, "Whatever, fine, gotta go." I just wanted to get out of there, so I started walking home. I made it about halfway home before it hit me, before that verse jumped in my head. You, you, you know the verse, it's in First John. All of a sudden, I'm walking, I'm on, I'm on the corner, all of a sudden, it hits me. Wait, wait. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And all those who love 
are born of God and know God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. I'm standing on the street corner and going, wait a second. So if Terry loves me, then Terry's born of God. If Terry loves me, then Terry knows God. Now, 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 now all you, all you hyper-evangelicals, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying I led Terry to Christ that day. I'm not saying she became a Christian. I don't know what she believes. She's still the worst mother I've ever seen. Like, I'm not, I'm not saying everything got magically fixed because she said those. All I'm saying is that her love for me that day gives me hope. It gives me hope. It makes me believe that if not now, maybe one day, God will get his way in the world. Now listen, I know you believe in God, many of you. And the God you believe in is love. I know that. I, 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 know, that. I know you believe in a God of love. So, so here's what I hope you believe, that that God is here. And right now, that that God is calling you not to save everybody, not to fix everybody, not to evangelize everybody, that God is calling you to love people. He's calling you to love people who desperately need to be loved. We stand up. I'll send you out of here. So God, I know you're here. And I know you're now. And I know you want these people. And God, I pray that you would take these young people and that you would help them to fight off the shallowness and the materialism and all the nonsense that seems so important. And that you would take them and make them great lovers. Great lovers. In Jesus' name, amen.